following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. Today's sermon will be a bit about hope, uh, but we're going to work our way there through genealogies. So I'm going to be reading some different passages of Scripture again. This is a combination of mostly Luke and Matthew. I think I mentioned last week that as we're going through this Advent season, we're compiling the four Gospels as they talk about the birth of Jesus and the events surrounding that. Uh, So I'm beginning today from, uh, I believe it is the book of Matthew. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had a mind to divorce her quietly. So they're pledged to be married, and Joseph is her husband. In Jewish culture, being betrothed was the same as being married. Um, They didn't live together yet because they hadn't had the ceremony, but legally speaking, it, it counted as the same. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus comes from the same word where you get Joshua or Yeshua, and it literally means Jehovah is salvation. So when you say his name is Jesus, he'll save people from their sins, it's a reference to what everyone knew this name signified. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, and that's a reference to the prophet Isaiah. And Emmanuel means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Interesting, just like Zachariah did not name his son after himself. We talked about this last week. He was given the name John. Joseph does not name his son after himself. He gives him the name Jesus. And this brings us to genealogies. So, There's two genealogies, one in Matthew and one in Luke. And we're going to focus on the one in Matthew for the purposes of our sermon this morning. But I want to talk about the two because they're different. And you'll often see stuff this time of year online where people who are skeptical of the accounts of the Bible are pointing out what seems to them to be discrepancies or asking questions of why these things are different. Like it ought to be pretty obvious who your parents are, but Joseph has two different dads listed. So let's walk through some of this just a little bit. So most scholars, at least conservative biblical scholars, think that Matthew was following the line of Joseph, who would be Jesus' legal father, uh, and they're tracking that through David's son Solomon. So both of these genealogies, as you can see, are going to start, well, they don't start with King David. One of them starts with Abraham. One of them starts with Adam. We'll get to that in a minute. But they definitely both start with Abraham, or they follow from Abraham. But when they get to David, they follow two different sons. One of them follows, as you can see on the left, the line following Solomon. The other, Solomon's brother, Nathan. The one on the left is Joseph's line through Solomon. And the one on the right is Mary's line through Nathan, who was Solomon's brother. So Joseph's line is the legal line. Mary's line is the bloodline. One thing to note is that both of those lines come from King David. And we'll talk just a little bit why this was important. David was a king. 
the covenant God made with David that was that the Messiah would come through the line of David. So here you have on both sides of Jesus' parental line, uh, tracking back to David, and then in addition, tracking back to Abraham. Luke, in fact, says Jesus was the son of Joseph, and then adds, so it was thought. So Jesus isn't Joseph's son according to heredity, but he is Joseph's son legally. So Matthew traces the legal line. Luke traces the natural line. So some things about Luke's line before we focus on Matthew's. Uh, it does list two different fathers. If you read in the actual list, uh, Matthew says that Jacob is the father of Joseph. And Luke says that Heli, I hope I'm saying that right, is the father of Joseph. And this has often been used to point out that the writers don't know what they're talking about. One thing I'll note that's not in my notes. Matthew and Luke were probably written between um, 45 to 65 approximately A.D. They were circulating within the church. If they had really gotten Joseph's father wrong, someone would surely have corrected them. So I think simply on the surface, it's worth noting, this probably simply means that the audience understood something that we might not. So here's two things that, was, that were very typical to happen in this kind of venue. Number one, there was no Greek word for son-in-law. So if the writer of Scripture is going to say Joseph was the son of Jacob or Joseph was the son of Heli versus Joseph was the son-in-law of Heli, it was all the same words. The audience understood because they lived in a community that probably knew each other pretty well what was meant, is it son or is it son-in-law. The other thing that would often happen, and you see this in the Old Testament, was something called a Leverite marriage. And the command was, if there's two brothers and they're both married and one of the brothers dies, the other brother was to marry his brother's widow. Uh, and this was not because they were trying to build a harem. This was to take care of them was the primary reason because a, a widow at that time often had a very difficult life. So the command was, you must take care of her, you marry her and bring her into the family. It would not be unusual if Joseph had a father and a stepfather in some fashion. I think either explanation is reasonable. I'm partial to the first one, that it was simply a Greek way of saying uh, that Joseph had a father and Joseph had a father-in-law. A second thing to note about Luke, Luke is written to a Gentile audience. Matthew is written to a Jewish audience. Matthew, as we're going to see, is sending a very specific message in a way that a Jewish audience would understand, that once again, the Gentiles didn't. It could be hard for us to see today. But Luke was writing to what he knew would be Gentiles. He goes further back than Abraham. He goes back to Adam, and I think there's an important reason for this. The Romans and Greeks were very focused on the ancestry of humanity back to the gods. You actually see this when you read Paul talking on Mars Hill to the Greek philosophers. And I want to read just a little bit from Acts 17. So this is Paul in this group of quite a few philosophers who met a lot. They talked about religion, philosophy, all kinds of things. Paul is there to make a case for Christianity. And before he gets specifically to Jesus, he leads with this. And he, he's referring to God here, made one of, from, of one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. This is why he's going back to Adam. He's tracing it back to one common ancestor. 
having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. And he's not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and exist. As even some of your own poets have said, we are his children. So Luke, writing to this audience, goes back to show that Adam is the direct child of God from which we have all descended. So Luke has a different purpose with what he, re- what he is recording in his account. But I'm going to stick with Matthew's because, once again, to the Jewish audience, there's some significant things happening in Matthew's genealogy. So this is a record of the genealogy. Now, this word is a similar word to Genesis. Remember I talked last week about how the account of Jesus' birth is in some ways a retelling of the creation of the world? Here you get direct language. This is the genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Remember last week we talked about Mary's song and Zachariah's song referencing David and Abraham because of the covenants God made with them. You're going to see it again here and a little bit later. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. There's 14 generations from David to the exile to Babylon. And there's 14 from the exile to Christ. So something to note, there's more than 42 generations of people from Adam to Jesus. If you just do the math, you'll realize that what's happening here with these three groups of 14, Matthew is using a literary device to send a message. His goal isn't to get every single person. In fact, you can see this even on the screen. Uh, Go to the next, uh, go back a slide. Go back one more slide. Go back one more slide. See, I should have planned this better. Do you know how the writing on the right side is much smaller than the writing on the left? Because from Abraham to Jesus, Matthew records 24 generations, but Luke records 39. 15 generations is quite a bit different. But Luke was writing to a different audience and was telling something different with his history. Matthew is also telling something specific with his history. So he's going to tell a story with his genealogy. His Jewish audience understood this technique. It seems weird to us today because we don't do history like this. But Jewish writers are very purposeful with what they did and didn't say and how they arranged things to tell history. Now you can go back to the slide where I was, which is... Uh, Keep going, Caitlin. I think it's three or four ahead of this. So these three groups of 14 are going to tell three different stories. The first one will be the establishment of starting of God's covenant with Abraham. So it's going to start with Abraham and then kind of trace Abraham to David coming out of the covenant with Abraham. And that'll be the establishment of God's covenant and in some ways the establishment or the beginning of the kingdom of Israel. The second group of 14 is going to chronicle the losing of the kingdom of Israel. And it starts with David, and then we're going to see a series of good and bad kings. And by the time that 14 is done, they're going into exile. Then the last group of 14 is going to be living in exile. And even by the time we get to Joseph, the children of Israel still don't have their kingdom back. But they're once again going to tell a story. You are in exile, and now you have a new king establishing a new kingdom with Jesus. And this is going to be the fulfillment of the covenants with Abraham and the covenants with David. So let's look at these genealogies. I am not going to read every single word, I'll warn you, partly because I'm not sure I'll get them all right. 
So the first 14, the establishment of the kingdom. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. And Jacob is the father of Judah and his brothers. Why list his brothers? Because this is where we get the 12 tribes of Israel. Judah is significant because there was also a promise made to him that from his lineage would come the Messiah. Judah is the father of Perez. And I'm just going to note, for discussion later, Perez is the first firstborn mentioned in the genealogy. And if you're familiar with the story, it's a weird story. We're like, he was a twin. He was one of two twins. Sorry, he wasn't a twin. He was one of two twins. And he like sneaks his arm out of the womb first and his mom puts something on his wrist and then he pulls his arm back and his brother gets born first and then he gets born, but he's still the firstborn. So it's kind of a weird story that might matter a little bit later on. Then there's Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Something to note. Tamar is the first of five women mentioned in this genealogy. And one thing you're going to note with most of these women, in fact, all of them until we get to Mary, there's usually something a little scandalous in their past. And in this case, uh, Tamar, you might notice that um, Judah was the father of her child, but Judah was also her father-in-law, so... Uh, we'll get to that a little bit later. Then there's Perez and Hezron and Ram and Aminadab and Nashon and uh, Salmon. And then Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. You may recognize that name. Second woman on the list. She was the prostitute at Jericho. She was also a Canaanite. Boaz is the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth, the third woman mentioned, was a Moabite, not someone who was Jewish. Obed's the father of Jesse, and Jesse's the father of King David. David is the only person in the genealogy who gets a title. There's lots of other kings who are mentioned in this genealogy, but David's the only one who gets a title. Why? We're supposed to focus on David. This is going to be important. This is tracking kingship in the line of Jesus. The second group of 14 is about the losing of the kingdom. And this starts again with David. David is the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. That's Bathsheba. That's a scandalous note in David's life. Solomon is the father of Rehoboam. Then you get Abijah and Asa and Jehoshaphat. And you get this whole list of kings. And what I put on the screen with the minuses and the pluses, the pluses are the righteous kings. The minuses are the kings where, in most cases, the Bible says, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And what I find interesting about this section of 14 is that Matthew didn't record just good kings. He recorded a whole mess of kings, literally. Some of them were terrible, and they're all in the line of the Messiah. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. At the end of this, you see Josiah is the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. So now we get to the next set of 14, which happens during the exile from the kingdom. And in this list, you once again get a mix of good and bad people. Some of them are what we might call heroes of the Old Testament. Others we hardly know anything about. But nonetheless, this is the list, and it ends with Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called the Christ. Interesting little language note for you little geeks about grammar. Typically, you, you might say Vince, uh, whose father is Anthony and mother is Sheila, of whom was born Vince. And you would just assume, oh, that's Anthony and Sheila's kid. 
The word whom here is a singular feminine pronoun. In other words, it's signifying right there in the text, this was not Joseph and Mary's child. This is Mary's child. Joseph did not help bring this child into the world. All right, so let's talk about the meaning here of Matthew a bit more. Like I said, by the time Matthew and Luke are written, 45 to 65, 50 to 70, somewhere in that range, they are writing to a, an early church that is growing, that is in the midst of persecution. And as they're writing the account of Jesus, they are loading this. I feel like I've used that word a lot today, but the more I study this, the more I just realize it's true. There's a lot of meaning in this that we can miss if we skim over it too quickly. First point, there's a new king in town. So about five to ten years before Jesus was born, Augustus had this contest throughout all the land that he owned. And the contest was to see which people group could honor him the most. At around 9 BC, this one group, I'm not sure which group it was, won the contest. And what they said was, we ought to make New Year's Day be the birthday of Augustus. And what historians and archaeologists have found is an actual script of what they suggested should happen. So this was written before Jesus was born, approximately five years before Jesus was born. Kind of a decree that went out through the kingdom. Here it is. Whereas the providence which divinely ordered our lives, created with zeal and munificence, the most perfect good for our lives by producing Augustus, and filling him with virtue for the benefaction of all mankind, sending us and those after us a Savior, who put an end to war and established all things. And whereas the birthday of the God, that's Caesar or Augustus, marked for the world the beginning of tidings, and that word is euangelion. Does it sound familiar? Evangelism? But it's it's the good news. It's good tidings that you read about when the angels sing in Luke 2. But this is what they're saying about Caesar. It's the beginning of the euangelion, the gospel of his coming. It's hard to tell whether the birthday of the most divine Caesar is a matter of greater pleasure or benefit. And that simply means, I don't know if I like it more or if it benefits me more. We could justly hold it to be equivalent to the beginning of all things. And he has restored at least to serviceability, if not to its natural state every form that had become imperfect and fallen into misfortune. Therefore, people would be right to consider this to have been the beginning of the breath of life for them. Therefore, it seems proper that the birthday of the most divine Caesar shall serve as the same New Year's Day for all citizens. Did any of that language sound biblical to you? Like this would be, if I would replace Caesar with Jesus, I probably would have got a couple of amens. Because they were worshiping Augustus. This is five years before Jesus shows up. And you're going to see, and I'll mention this once again in just a little bit, um, it's right off the bat, the angels challenge this by giving the new euangelion, the new gospel, the new good news. And give it 50 years, and by the time these books are written, the writers are saying very purposefully, You know all those things they said about Augustus as this king that we ought to worship, who has divinely ordered our lives. He's brought goodness for all of mankind. He's a savior. He's going to end wars. He's established all things. 
Uh, it's the beginning of all things. He's restoring everything broken into a serviceable state. It's the beginning of the breath of life for people. Oh, the biblical writers are all over that. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not the king you should be looking at. That's not the God, because that's the language they used. That's not the God that those things apply to. And so as they're writing of the life of Jesus, God is inspiring them to use language that's going to directly counter what the culture saw as the gods. So Jesus is the euangelion. He's the gospel. He's the true king. Once again, in Luke 2.10, the angels say, I bring you good tidings, euangelion. I bring you good tidings of great joy. There's born a savior. This is the savior. On earth, Peace. This is the one who brings peace. Not Augustus. If you keep reading in Luke 2, there's another song that we didn't get to last week that Simeon sings. And he says, for my eyes have seen your salvation. It's Jesus who brings salvation. Not Augustus. Salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So Matthew and Luke, you have to realize as you read these Gospels, you're reading Gospels that are politically explosive. These were treasonous documents making their circles in the first century. You're claiming a new king, a new savior. Everything that had been declared about Augustus was wrong. That's not your king. That is not your God. That is not your savior. This is the one, and he's for all nations, and he's for all people. And it's interesting to me. The biblical writers had this 50 to 70 year window where as persecution is rising, they could have watered down the language. They could have been a little more coded. They could have just dropped some hints here and there. So if someone picked up any copies that were circulating, they wouldn't have gotten into trouble. But it seems to me they just got more and more bold. Like, no, 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 this is the king. There's no way around it. You don't hide it. You boldly proclaim it. We serve him. We pledge our allegiance to him. That's it. That's the one who deserves this. So as as I'm reading that and recognizing that even these genealogies are making this statement, Jesus comes from the line of kings, God made a covenant with Abraham that said, I will save the world through your people. Here he is. He made a covenant with David. A king will descend from you. Here he is. The genealogies themselves are shot across the bow of Rome. There is no king but Christ. Just look where he has come from. And as I was thinking about this this week too, I was just thinking, that if we don't feel the countercultural clash of the gospel, we aren't understanding the radical nature of the kingdom of God. I think the gospel continues in all empires and all kingdoms that are of this earth to continue to fire across the bow and remind us, the children of God, the people of God, that Jesus is our king. There is no other savior. There is no other God. There is no other thing that will bring any kind of lasting peace. There's no thing that will bring any kind of lasting hope. There's nothing else that will repair the world other than 
putting a little bit of duct tape on something that needs to be completely redone. It's always going to be Jesus. And I think we're always going to face this challenge that we're going to live in a culture and in a world that is going to want us to give allegiance to other saviors. We will be told there is euangelion, there is good news about what can bring you peace, what can make your life easy, what can bring you comfort, what can make you happy, what can make you feel good inside, what can give you meaning. And in a culture like ours, I think there's a big three that promise us that they are the good news, and that's money, and it's power, and it's pleasure. And what I mean by this, because money isn't of itself bad. Power isn't of itself bad. Pleasure is not of itself bad. What we get is a message from our culture that says, these are the things that will save you. Good news. If you've got enough money, you'll be fine. Work more, make more. As long as you can have this nice thing and this nice vacation and this nice house and this beautiful car and this good insurance and this good, uh, this thing and this thing and this thing that money will get you good news. This is the euangelion. It'll save you. It'll give you everything you want. And power does the same thing. It's any version of the good life that says, I have to be in control of the people and situations in my life. The more I am in control, the more things go like I want them to go, the more power I have in a situation. I'm not interested in serving. Good news. Get power. Be the one in charge. Get everyone else to follow your lead. Don't follow someone else's lead. I think Frank Sinatra wrote the hymn for this. I did it my way, which has been sung over and over again. At the end of life, what makes life matter? (laughs) I did it my way. That's the euangelion of our culture when it comes to power. That is not a biblical message of salvation or good news. In fact, my way is horrible news for me. And then pleasure, it's any version of the good life that says, it must be all about me, my happiness, my preference, my feeling good. This is the thing that gives my life meaning and purpose, direction and hope. But Jesus comes along and he says, no, no, no. I am the euangelion. I'm the good news. I'm the Savior. What I'm going to bring you is holiness and righteousness. I'm going to purify your hearts and your minds. My spirit is going to dwell in you. I'm going to give you my word to guide and direct you. I'm going to put you in a community of like-minded people that are serving me. There's going to be fruit that comes out of you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering. I'm going to give you peace that the world cannot understand. I'm going to give you joy, which is so much deeper than happiness. I'm going to give you life more abundant, said Jesus. Oh, and to get there, you will take up a cross. You will take up a cross. You'll have to die to yourself. You'll have to be broken and spilled out for others. Jesus modeled it in ways we never can. You'll have to be broken and spilled out for others. But Jesus says, I'm telling you, this is the good life. This is good news. So the good news isn't that life will be easy. 
Carrying a cross is not easy. Dying daily is not easy. Being broken and spilled out for other people is not easy. Jesus says, if you follow me, it will cost you everything. But you get Christ. Colossians one twenty seven says, it's the glorious riches of this mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is our euangelion. It is not money. It is not power. It is not pleasure. At the kingdom of God, those things can all be ordered and directed to their good God-intended purposes. Don't misunderstand me. But we as Christians, we live a countercultural life. We live a treasonous life in our culture spiritually treasonous life in our culture. If we're not feeling that, we're not understanding the radical nature of this king and this kingdom that we're called into. I think we have to feel it, because if we don't feel it, we're going to miss out what Jesus is offering us in his kingdom. Life more abundant. Is there anything better than that? I don't want to gain the whole world and lose my soul. I would be happy to, well, God help me, be happy to reject the entire world if that meant keeping my soul. That is what God offers me in his kingdom and everything else fades away. Now, if God chooses to bless us with these other things, awesome. I'm not going to complain. But that is, those things are not my good news. Jesus is my good news. And then finally, This new king and this new kingdom are for everyone. This is one thing I love about these lineages. Back to some of the things I mentioned. Number one, not many firstborn are mentioned in Matthew's lineage. And this was in a culture where firstborn mattered. You got the blessing. You got the primary inheritance. I mean, being a firstborn was a big deal. And you look at the lineage of Jesus as recorded in Matthew, and there are not many firstborns. In fact, David who's given the covenant, is way down the list in his own family. There's five women in this genealogy in a culture that simply did not place women in genealogies. You tracked genealogies through the males, and four of these women were non-Jewish, which you'd think would, would be something you'd want to cover up in the lineage of this Jewish king who was coming. At least three of them were deeply sexually compromised, There were men like Judah, who I mentioned earlier with uh, Tamar. Judah, we often talk about Tamar, but here's the reality. Judah is traveling somewhere, and he sees a prostitute, and he's like, hey. And it's his daughter-in-law, and he doesn't recognize her, and he becomes a dad. Meanwhile, she had set the whole thing up to seduce him because she needed a son. That's in the lineage of Jesus. There's men like David who had another man killed so he could marry his wife. The second group of 14, half the kings were an unholy mess. One title is given. That's given to David. A lot of the names we know nothing about. Now what strikes me is that normally they would have highlighted how awesome the lineage of the king was. You had to know this king came from royalty from start to finish like Everybody was awesome, like the Lego movie could have made the soundtrack for the ideal lineage of a king. Everyone is awesome. Go ahead, sing with me. 
No, don't. But the writers of the Gospels are highlighting that Jesus is a result of God's promises and God's covenant, not because the people making them or the people continuing them were awesome, but because the God who made the covenant is awesome. And he has a plan and he has a purpose and his will will be accomplished. And he doesn't have to have perfect people in order for his will to be accomplished. In fact, I think the genealogies highlight the promises and the faithfulness of God in deeply flawed people who, at least for most of them, are nonetheless God's children. So this is what I wrote in my notes. God does not need amazing people to accomplish his purposes. He involves regular people in the accomplishment of his amazing purposes. And we lit a candle for hope this morning, and this is something about these genealogies that give me hope. Now, now the big hope is because Jesus is a Savior in the deepest, most eternal sense of the word. The other thing is that as I look at my own life, as you look at your life, if you ever wonder, can God's purposes be accomplished through me, broken and flawed sinner that I am? And the answer is yes. Now, God calls us to righteousness. Don't misunderstand. God does not call us to complacency where we sit back and go, hey, whatever, uh, use this. I mean, God calls us. Paul's clear, run the race with integrity. Like, you got to put sweat equity into this commitment. But God is not waiting for your perfection to accomplish his purposes through you. God is not waiting for you to be awesome because you will never arrive. None of us will. What God is showing in this lineage is what an amazing and powerful and faithful God he is, that he remains faithful to his word and to his promises in spite of the many ways we try to derail it and screw it up. That's an awesome God. And these genealogies give me hope not just because a Savior came to save our souls, but because it also reminds me that even me, even I, can be used by God. Can I just, this is my last thing, be hopeful this morning. I don't know where your life has been and I don't know where your life is at, but simply look at the lineage of Jesus You might give up on you. It doesn't mean God has. When we give our lives to Christ, when we surrender to him, he takes us as we are, but he begins this process of renewing us into the image of Christ, to making us into what he has called us to be, to purifying us, to guiding us, directing us, building us, to making a mansion out of the shack that we bring him. Lord, I'm just, I'm grateful that you're a God of hope. I'm thankful for the hope Jesus brings to all of us for the forgiveness of our sins, the redemption of our lives, the salvation of our souls. And I'm grateful that Jesus is faithful, that he's present, that he's near. 
and that he redeems even the most broken things in us. May that give us hope. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.